Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. It's 2.01. If you are here for episode number two of The Evidence Show, the most riveting hour in evidence management on Thursdays, every other Thursday, uh, I can promise you that. Uh, we're going to talk about something that is really interesting and really compelling, and it's it's important for us as evidence managers and evidence custodians to understand today. And I've had the the benefit of, through this pandemic, uh, getting acquainted with James Nally at, at the Orange County Sheriff's Office, and we've been working together on, on some past trainings, and we look forward to working together on future trainings. But James has got a, a really... Uh, deep background in dealing with fentanyl, and that's what we're going to talk about today, but I shouldn't have given that away so quickly because I want to again point people to that evidence manager committee forum. We talked about that just a little bit ago. Would encourage people to uh, to check that out and join. It's a great resource. Uh, if you're curious about what we do here at the Evidence Management Institute, I would invite you to come to our website, evidencemanagement.com. There are some resources there that hopefully will be of benefit to you. I know that we've put our standards and best practices online. Uh, there's also a client side where if you wanna look at resources that, uh, that we talk about, if you can't find them directly on our site, chances are they're on that client site. Uh, we just put some things kind of behind the wall to keep it from, from just open view for the general public. But uh, hopefully you'll be able to find stuff there. If you're looking for past episodes of uh, this show or our past trainings that we've done online, you can find those on the website as well. And every week I like to mention uh, how we're able to do this, how we're able to pay the bills and get things done, especially when we're not going out and training people. Uh, but we've got a, a a great partnership with Tracker Products. They're an evidence management software company. And because of our partnership with Tracker, we're able to do what we do. So I would encourage you to check them out at trackerproducts.com. This is where I should have started the conversation about what we're talking about today. This is the one about fentanyl. And the goal here is to teach you in an hour or to talk in an hour about what every evidence room, what every evidence custodian needs to know about fentanyl. Uh, I can tell you that I have not, I, I don't have a lot of expertise in fentanyl. I have taught about it in class, but what I teach has come from what I've learned from other people about fentanyl. Uh, we were fortunate at our agency. I retired right as this thing was kind of kicking off as a huge problem with respect to law enforcement and property rooms. So I'm going to introduce our two guests today. They're both from beautiful Orange County, California. Uh, both work for Orange County and are one works for the Sheriff's Office directly. Uh, but James Nally, you might remember James uh, from our past training episodes. Uh, he also does evidence training and when there's not a pandemic going on. But uh, James, you want to, well, talk just introduce yourself real quick and then we'll we'll introduce yeah, Brian. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a slide in my presentation too that just gives a little background, but I hate to show that slide because it's, you know, it's I'm here. So I'm just talking about it. Um, James Nally here. Uh, you know, a lot of folks know me already from, uh, like Sean said, our uh, training class in California. It's uh, Chain of Custody. Uh, the website is chainofcustodypro.com. And basically we just started uh, that a, as a necessity because we realize that California law is complex. There's a lot of things that we have that we have to deal with in California that not every other state uh, 
you know, as experiencing all the time. So, you know, things like firearm laws, uh, legislation on rape, uh, or I should say sexual assault evidence, the list goes on and on, legalizing marijuana, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so fentanyl is just another one of those things that we have to deal with in, in our unit. And unfortunately, it, it kind of blew up in Orange County, and that's kind of where we are today with uh, knowing so much about it only because it happened in our backyard. So, so awesome. I'm, gra I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Sean, very much for allowing us, uh, allowing me to come in and, and kind of give some of my uh, expertise on this subject because uh, it's passionate and dear to my heart. Absolutely. And I am absolutely happy to have you on every time <laughs> you are here. I'll also introduce Brian Quigley. Brian Quigley is a safety manager that is attached to the Orange County Sheriff's Office. He works directly for Orange County. Brian, you want to tell us a little bit, little bit about you? Of course. Uh, my name is uh, Brian Quigley. I'm the safety specialist currently assigned to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. My role is pretty much to provide information and guidance to the Orange County Sheriff's Department in regards to safety-related questions, uh, programs, um, and to provide guidance on uh, Cal OSHA-related uh, material. Um, as far as my background, uh, I got my start in law enforcement back in 06 for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And I moved up from uh, their dispatch office to a non-sworn custody position, and then uh, took on a sworn position as a deputy probation officer in Riverside County, uh, where I stayed for another six years before coming back to Orange County as a safety specialist. Um, so I have had plenty of experience uh, taking 911 calls, dealing with people in the jail, uh, arresting people in the field, collecting evidence, including fentanyl, um, and then now dealing with the safety uh, side of the house. So awesome. um, thank you for the invite. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here. I think you're going to be able to provide us uh, with a perspective and some expertise that, that, uh, that we don't have and that people need to hear. So I appreciate you being here. Just a couple of really quick kind of housekeeping items before I switch presenters and make make James the presenter for uh, his part of the presentation. But if you have questions, when questions come up, if you've got questions that you want to ask, if there's anything you're curious about, there's a little question window at the bottom of your screen. And if you will type those questions in there, I will try to facilitate questions and then uh, just kind of throw them out to James and, and Brian as we go. Typically what we do, we do the first hour, we try to do training the first hour, and then we will cut it off, but we will answer questions. I can stay here as long as uh, as there is time available, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll work in questions and answers as we go, but I'm gonna switch this right now to, let's see, there are a lot of people to, there we go. James, I've switched it to you. So you lucky. should be able to to take control. This All will right, be a little perfect. bit of an awkward handoff, but yeah, no worries, no worries. I can't I can't see my screen, so I'm just uh, winging it here. I can see a uh, presentation though. So um, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name's Jim Zelli, as we said before, and uh, this is our fentanyl safety in the property room. So we just always like to remind people that. Um, the line staff is the foundation of a functioning evidence room, right? Oh, 
Can you guys see my um, my screen? I think it might just now be coming up, James. Okay. Yeah, I just shared it, so hopefully you can see that now. Get rid of all this stuff. All right. So here's a just a. I'm not going to go through all my accolades here. I just wanted to uh, kind of show you a, a few things that I've done in my ancient years in property evidence. Today we're going to be talking about fentanyl, as if there's not enough stuff to deal with in property evidence already between uh, the potential of loaded firearms, uh, knives improperly packaged, uh, needles, loaded needles, the list goes on and on, marijuana aspergillus. Uh, I mean, there's no question that uh, it's just more, it gets more and more complex with the things that we deal with. But fentanyl has to has to rate up there towards the very top of, uh, of the things that we handle. And the primary reason is, it can, it can kill, kill you. you. Right? right? So, uh, this is hey, James. Can you see the screen? Sean, can you see the screen? One second. I, I think I've made you the presenter twice because it's oh, now. Oh, okay. I'm double talking. Double -talking. I don't see you. Uh oh. Uh -oh. Let me take it back for just a second. Okay. Then I I'm think gonna... I fixed it. Now I'm going to change it again. Okay. This is the kind of high-quality riveting show that uh, that you've paid good money to see. So let's see if that worked. Because you're on there twice, and I'm not sure which one. Uh, that's uh, it. That's it. That's it. Oh. Oh. Yeah. How are we doing, How are we doing now? now? There. I don't see your screen. Are you are you sharing? Let me get rid of this. Sharing. It says waiting to see your screen, waiting to view your screen. How about that? There we go. Now we're cooking with gas. We oh, did that right. intentionally because what we wanted yes. to do was show you, the viewers at home, that uh, that sometimes technology doesn't work the way you want it to. So there you go, James. Everything is up and running. Well, this is a new experience for us, so hopefully we'll get this thing figured out sooner than later. But uh, then back to fentanyl. This is fentanyl. This is it in its molecular structure. It doesn't look very menacing here, but uh, let's get into it. And let's talk a little bit about what the problems are with fentanyl. So we're going to talk about what is fentanyl, give a little background, a little history, and talk to you uh, specifically about how toxic the drug actually is. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the proper methods for packaging and handling. And this actually starts in the field. So this is something you can relay to your, uh, your officers as well. Um, I I'm hoping that everyone in this audience has at least heard about fentanyl, that they've at least had some form of training because you know we've been seeing it come through since uh, about 2016. So you know, people say, oh, well, I haven't seen any fentanyl come through my evidence stream. Chances are your crime lab's probably not testing for it. So if, if that's the case, 
you know, give your crime lab a ring and say, hey, are we uh, are we testing for fentanyl now? And if so, uh, I need to be aware of it so that I can take the proper precautions for it. Uh, we need to know how to stay safe in the property room. And that's all going to be about PPE and having proper procedures to keep us safe. And then Brian's going to come in towards the end and talk about naloxone, otherwise known as, and I misspelled naloxone, I apologize for that, but it's otherwise known as Narcan. Narcan is the uh, antidote for an opioid overdose, and that's super important for us, right? So let's talk a little bit about the history. Uh, Pharmaceutical-grade fentanyl, uh, which is a man-made synthetic opioid, was introduced in 1959 for the purpose of pain management. So it actually had a purpose, still does have a purpose, and that's why um, the pharmaceutical-grade type of, of uh, fentanyl is still used uh, by medical staff today. Uh, obviously, 1960s, it was uh, introduced as Supplemase. So it uh, came out as a different name, and over the years, it's kind of uh, found its way into the fentanyl based on the molecular structure of it. So analogs were developed shortly thereafter. Analogs are just uh, a, a similar drug that has the same molecular structure, uh, plus or minus a, a atom or whatever, and, and it's, it has different levels of uh, toxicity. So obviously like carfentanil is gonna have, uh, we're gonna talk about carfentanil, it's one of the most uh, deadliest opioids, but uh, transdermal patch was created in the mid 1990s. And again, um, it became widely used for the, the end of life. So uh, hospice patients and um, terminally ill patients were using that as pain medication. Um, and obviously it was, it was a lot more potent than its uh, predecessor morphine. All right, so, and, and one, of the more key, uh, one of the more key topics is that it was the first pain medication that used uh, transdermal delivery. So for those of you that don't know exactly what transdermal means, it means that it can absorb through the skin, uh, which is a big problem for us in the units too, right? Let's talk about illicit uh, fentanyl and, and where it's coming from and, and the toxicity levels of it and so forth. So uh, 1979, uh, the illicit manufacturer of fentanyl began from uh, the prescription transdermal patches. There was also lollipops and nasal spray. So they were extracting the, the narcotic component of that and putting it into uh, illicit drugs. Okay, so um, the, the biggest thing that I wanna emphasize on fentanyl and one of the reasons why it is so toxic and so dangerous is that it's super, super concentrated. It's super potent. So doses are measured in micrograms rather than milligrams. We'll talk a little bit about that. So let's let's say uh, we took a, a, a packet of sugar, right? Uh, say a packet of sweet and low. I tear that bad boy open and you spill it out onto the table, right? Take your favorite credit card. That's one gram, okay? So it's approximately one gram of uh, uh, sweet and low packet. So now you're gonna take your favorite credit card and you're gonna make 10 individually equal lines out of that, okay? So each one of those lines is basically a dose. So if you were to say uh, heroin, cocaine, uh, and some of the other narcotics that come in powder format, you're gonna have a tenth of a gram is gonna be one dose, okay? Now take a couple grains or granulars of that material, and that's a dose of fentanyl. So you can see how, how concentrated it is, and anything more than that would be a, a fatal overdose uh, if it were taken. So just to give you an idea, it's about 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine and 40 times more powerful than heroin. So you understand why, um, why we're having so many problems uh, with it coming through our evidence stream. 
some of the legal, uh, illegal analogs include carfentanil, which is extremely, extremely toxic. And we'll talk a little bit about carfentanil, uh, feral, acryl, and valeryl fentanyl. All of those are just analogs of fentanyl, and they all do the same thing, just with different levels of tox toxicity. Let's take a look at the legal, the lethal doses. So if you notice over here in the, uh, the top left corner, uh, that's a lethal dose of fentanyl next to the penny. Also below it, the ecstasy pills, each one of those ecstasy pills is a, has a lethal dose of fentanyl. So we're saying, well, I thought it was just powder format. Why, why is it in pills? We're, we're seeing fentanyl come through in everything. Powder format, uh, prescription, counterfeit prescription medications, even tar heroin like you see on the top right-hand corner. Um, and then if you look in the middle, you'll see a lethal, do lethal dose of uh, the left side would be your um, heroin. The middle is fentanyl, and the right side of it is carfentanil. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the toxicity levels of that. So for a second, let's talk about packaging, methods for packaging and handling, because that's where we live, right? That's the important stuff about what we have to do and how we, how we have to ensure that we stay safe in our, in our units. So packaging guidelines. Our agency has created some very specific packaging guidelines based on the fact that we had so much fentanyl coming in in the very beginning. And how did we discover that we were getting fentanyl in uh, our evidence room? Because honestly, it's cut, it's a cutting agent. You know, So you got heroin, you've got methamphetamine, you got cocaine coming in uh, with fentanyl in it. So it wasn't until our crime lab discovered that we had a rash of overdoses and they started to take a little bit deeper look into the narcotics that were coming in from these coroner cases. And, and upon taking a look at these coroner cases and finding the narcotics there on, on scene, they identified uh, different types of fentanyl that were coming in, which led to these massive overdoses, especially when uh, the, the people manufacturing the drugs uh, don't necessarily have a specific formula. It's kind of like trial and error for, um, for their uh, recipes. So when our officers come in, first and foremost, we wanna say that we're hoping, desperately hoping that all agencies have, have stopped field testing. Um, it's just so incredibly dangerous to field test, uh, you know, out there uh, in the field and take a chance on your, your health and safety. So we've uh, worked with the district attorney's office and the forensics community to forego field testing. Uh, I know the DA's office wanted to have that field test done, the NIC kit, the presumptive, so that it would help their probable cause in court. But it, it's just too way too um, uh, dangerous to do that uh, in the field. So as our officers come in, now we require them to don two pairs of nitro gloves. You say, well, can it be latex? The answer is no. Uh, latex doesn't protect as well as nitro gloves. And we're asking that they place uh, two pairs of nitro gloves on. Uh, safety glasses, there's different levels and threat assessments for needing other uh, PPE. Like obviously, if you go to a scene, people are down, people are out, there's uh, obviously a lot of narcotics everywhere. You'd really wanna just back out of that, that scene and let uh, your contingency responders handle that because it could be a mass, uh, a mass overdose of fentanyl, it could be a pill manufacturing facility, et cetera. 
So uh, at least wear an N95 respirator and uh, the gloves. All narcotics must be packaged in a Ziploc or heat seal bag. I'll show you examples of what we use uh, to package uh, the narcotics. And we just get in the habit of putting it all the same way. Some people have asked me, hey, uh, is there fentanyl in marijuana? And actually we have seen fentanyl come in in marijuana too. It's, it's a little bit rare, but um, we do see it. So you wanna make sure you treat all of the narcotics the same way, okay? So now the officer comes in, he's got his original packaging that he collected in the field. It could be uh, all the different formats of how narcotics are packaged for sales or for possession. So you have bindles, right? Pieces of paper that are folded up with the narcotics inside. You could have balloons. Um, you could have small baggies that the item's in. We're gonna call that the primary packaging, okay? So no matter how it comes in, we're gonna call that primary, okay? And we're talking about uh, narcotics that are coming into your unit that are under 400, uh, 400 grams, okay? So uh, 400 grams or more, it's like kilo size or more is a completely different process, all right? So we're talking about the small uh, quantities that come in. So you have your primary packaging, uh, you have your double gloves on, then your PPE. You want to put that into another sealed bag, another sealed plastic baggie. Now, these can be Ziploc baggies, or the preferred method is a heat seal bag. Okay, so primary packaging goes into secondary packaging. You either seal with the Ziploc or you heat seal. The reason it's really important to, I think, more important to use heat seal than Ziploc is, what do you do with a Ziploc baggie? right? Your mom's getting your lunch ready, your little kid getting your lunch, or you're a parent, you're getting your kid's lunch ready to go, put the sandwich in there, you start to seal the Ziploc. What do people typically tend to do? Put it up against their body and push the air out, right? When you push that air out, where's all the powder go? Right up in your face, right? Now you have an exposure. So it's, it's always better, in my opinion, and as a standard, to heat seal, okay? You're just eliminating some of that, that risk. Um, it's always good to, okay, so once you've got your primary uh, packaging and your secondary packaging, now you can take your secondary packaging and place that into your, your standard envelopes or however you would store evidence it, at your shop. Uh, we like to put them in either the six by nine or the nine by 12 uh, Manila or craft style envelopes. Get that all sealed up with the initials, get it booked in, and it's always a good thing or actually, if you know it's fentanyl or you suspect it to be fentanyl, make sure you either write on the outside or if your agency has some uh, fentanyl stickers, you'd want to place that on the on the property as well next to your, your tag, your Evans tag, okay? So we're talking about 400 grams or more, including kilos. It must be placed, instead of doing, uh, you can't obviously stuff two kilos into a, a, a manila envelope, right? So you should use a containment bucket and again, I'm going to show you examples of containment bucket in the next slide. Uh, and then again, just we're reiterating, make sure you write on the envelope or on the bucket that you have potential fentanyl. Okay, so here's exactly what I was talking about. You got your uh, double nitro gloves. You have your, um, and, I, and I'm, I apologize, but I missed a step, really critical step. And I want to, I want to go back and talk about that real quick. So if you, once you take your primary packaging, and you put your primary packaging into your secondary packaging and you seal that. Just before you put that into your envelope, 
you definitely want to strip your outer layer of nitro gloves. Remember at the beginning, we had talked about uh, putting two pairs of nitro gloves. And the reason for that is any residue that was on your primary packaging, uh, we don't want to contaminate the outside of our, of our evidence with any residual or residue from, uh, from your original packaging. So once again, primary packaging goes into your secondary packaging, heat seal or Ziploc with a seal on top of that. And just before you take your secondary packaging and place it into your, uh, your evidence envelope, strip the outer layer gloves and dispose of those immediately, okay? Now you have your evidence, you're all booked in, you're ready to go. Here's just an example of what I was talking about. Uh, where there's examples of bindles, baggies, balloons, uh, narcotics, including prescription medication. Um, you have a syringe there, and then there's your either your red line bags or your heat sealer. Okay. So again, for uh, fentanyl or narcotics coming in over 400 grams, you definitely want to use something a little more robust, like uh, heavier duty bags, and then of course putting it into a containment bucket where you would seal it. Okay. Any questions so far? If you do, please feel free to ask questions and Sean can stop me at any time. All right, staying safe, what you need to know. We talked I've about got, this a little bit. I've got one real quick, James. Oh yeah, sure, um, go ahead, Sean. I'm and, sorry, I can't see and this you, might, so. And this might be, yeah, as they come in and as we're talking, I'll go ahead and stop you just so we get these answered and, and you or Brian can jump in, but this is an sure, excellent question. Do. And I just want to kind of jump in and say, you know, there's new stuff. I love to learn new stuff and I'm learning new stuff here today. So this is fun. But the question is, where do you dispose of the gloves? Yeah, I mean, what, we, what we've done, we've set up little uh, specialty trash cans, right? So when those gloves go into a specialty trash can, you tie it off and it would go with you to the narcotics burn. Um, you know, maybe that's overkill. Uh, there's really no uh, specific information about uh, about how to destroy fentanyl. We're still doing it the conventional way at the uh, incineration facility. Um, and uh, until we get word that, uh, that that's a no-go, we're just gonna continue down that path. But it's always nice to have, uh, turn your gloves inside out as you take them off, put them into your uh, waste receptacle, and then save that waste receptacle to uh, go on the burn. Okay, hopefully that answers your question. So again, uh, just to reiterate, the nitro gloves, do a double pair of nitro gloves, um, and then take the outer layer off after you've placed the primary package in the secondary package. I can't stress that enough. Uh, if you're able to, wash your hands immediately after uh, handling narcotics uh, with cold water and avoid using alcohol-based hand sanitizer because this is just a direct, a direct path into your bloodstream, okay? So if you did have any residual, you're gonna open your pores up and you're gonna introduce the fentanyl directly into your bloodstream, it's gonna get you an exposure, okay? Uh, the ways of getting exposure, accidental exposures can be uh, ingested, so you can accidentally eat it, uh, inhale through your nose or absorb through the skin. And trust me, you know, from what we've seen, we've had a couple exposures at our agency already, uh, luckily none of them have, uh, have been fatal. Uh, and I'm sure Brian will get into that a little bit more at the end, but uh, it's it happens so quick. Exposure through the skin not is not going to be as quick as if you uh, got it in your mucous membranes of your nose, your eyes, and so forth. But it happens very fast, and sometimes 
folks don't even have an opportunity to get help beforehand. So always keep an eye on your partner. Um, we'll talk about how to handle this, like how to handle uh, your intake areas, how to handle your lab runs, how to have uh, Narcan in your uh, storage areas, close to your vaults and so forth. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that, uh, but I just wanna make sure that uh, if you don't have Narcan in your agency, uh, now's the time to really push for it and get some. Um, like I said, the onset exposure happens very, very rapidly. Symptoms can include a difficulty breathing, drowsiness, sedation, disorientation, uh, pinpoint pupils, skin rash, and calm, uh, clammy skin. So those are some signs. If your partner drops out um, after his handling narcotics or been in that area with narcotics, uh, you have a, a pretty good shot at knowing what it is. Primary uh, treatment is uh, naloxone or more commonly known as Narcan. Always, always, always have Narcan available. And just like I said before, your intake area, uh, narcotic storage, your lab runs. You may even have to um, take a look at how you do lab runs, uh, the type of uh, containers that you transport in. We've really modified the way we, we handle narcotics a, a lot in our unit. We've created um, some bins, some specific red fentanyl bins that we use. Uh, we always put them during the transportation process, we always put them on a cart. Luckily for us, I mean, our, our lab is across the hallway, so it's not as big, but I feel for folks that have to drive somewhere with fentanyl, especially by yourself. So you wanna do everything you can uh, to keep yourself safe, to put that in a containment uh, unit, like in a, a tote, make sure the tote's sealed, put the tote in the trunk. Anything you can do to distance yourself from that, but yet still maintain uh, proper chain of custody and control over that item, is uh, it, it could potentially be a lifesaver. All right, so we're gonna give this, uh, Sean, do you think we can run this? This video, see if we can uh, give it a shot. Let's try it. All right. This is uh, the head of the D uh, DEA. And I think we failed. Okay. No good? Unless he just moves like this and doesn't speak very much. But yeah, I think... Yeah, folks, <laughs> for you watching okay. at home, one of the one of the only kind of downsides of the the webinar platform that we're using is you can't play videos, uh, and we've learned that the hard way. We were hoping against hope that it would work, but I think we've really confirmed our suspicions here today. So we'll we'll figure that out on the fly, and we can just kind of move to the next one. No worries. Uh, this video was put out by the. Um, the DEA's office. So for the, the head of the DEA to make a video warning law enforcement about the dangers of fentanyl is a big deal. And um, I think that this video really brings a lot to the training. It adds credibility to everything that we're saying, uh, especially for those agencies that really haven't seen it or haven't been plagued with it so far. It's out there. And uh, and he talks a, a lot about you know how to keep yourself safe as well. And even hearing from some officers about their exposure and uh, how quickly it happens. So if you get a chance, uh, just take a look at it uh, on your own through YouTube or whatnot, or, or send me an email and I'll be happy to share the link with you. All right. So now we're getting towards the evidence side. Now we've, we've kind of helped the guys in the field stay safe and, and eliminate the, um, the presumptive testing. 
We've kind of walked you through the booking process uh, like 15 times now, but it's all good. We walk you through the booking process. Now we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what's going to happen in your unit. So obviously uh, you want to establish your chain of custody and that's from the time of collection. Comes in chain of custody. Next is uh, what we talked about. No, uh, no longer are you conducting presumptive testing. Um, yeah, I'm marking, I guess we kind of talked about this already as well. We want to make sure you mark uh, the item as possible fentanyl, and that's something that your uh, field officers would do before even bringing it into the office. That way, if there's an issue on the way back to the station, <clears throat> the responders, medical responders can see, hey, maybe this is a fentanyl accidental exposure. You got it sitting on the front seat, and the envelope, the evidence envelope, even though it's not tagged yet, would say possible fentanyl. So just another indicator, something to do in the field. Ensure proper packaging. Um, your packaging guidelines, something that you wanna make sure you have in your um, packaging manual. Make sure that if you're enforcing a right of refusal process on fentanyl or on narcotics themselves, that you have it written in your packaging manual. That way you have a leg to stand on if you have to enforce your right of refusal policy. And then last but not least, and one of the most important things for us is store your fentanyl and narcotics in a separate, secured, alarmed, ventilated, which is one of the key uh, elements there, and preferably monitored location within your property room. I say keep fentanyl separate. Um, we have our own reasons for doing that. I, I know it may not be feasible for every agency to keep your fentanyl separate, but by having it separate, not only are you able to maintain uh, a good eye on it, so to speak, and kind of have your statistics, but also to keep yourself safe if there were to be some kind of natural disaster uh, or fire or flood, let's hope that never happens. But if you have an earthquake, you want to make sure that uh, if anything falls, you know, falls, let, let's just show you, let me, let me just skip to showing you uh, and then submit for lab analysis. That's always a really important thing. If you don't know it's fentanyl, you get to the lab, have them analyze it, and then they'll have their own process for sending it back with indicators on it. So here's what I was talking about on the left side. Uh, instead of having your narcotics just sitting on a shelf where they're exposed to, um, you know, to fall off the shelf and bust open, we're talking about like the larger items, kilo-sized items are bigger, like you see on the right-hand side. And these pictures on the right-hand side are actually um, uh, items that have come right out of our shop. Uh, we have close to probably 400 and some pounds of fentanyl currently in our unit. So we want to make sure that we take every precaution that we can. And the one thing that we've come up with are these uh, red modular totes on the left-hand side. So if you notice, they're contained inside of each tote. Uh, the, the gravity holds the lids down so they won't fall out of the, out of the, the tote. And then also it's on a rolling uh, cart at the bottom. So when it goes into the vault that's directly behind it, it gets secured between two shelving stanchions and thus not allowing it to tip or, or move in any way. Now, could it fall if we had a big enough earthquake? Yeah, it probably could, but the likelihood of, of the uh, narcotics popping out of uh, the lockable totes is a lot um, less likely to happen, okay? Any questions so far, John? We did have one request to share some of the videos on the Facebook community forum. So we'll, we'll oh, look at that. Oh, absolutely. That's a great idea. Who, who thought of that? That was Susie Allen. Susie. 
Good job. Thank you. It will definitely put those up so you guys can take a look. Um, I always like to leave, in my classes, I always like to leave, um, leave you with this one video that was put out by post. I had a little hand in helping create this video. Um, it's less than two minutes. If anyone has ever, uh, if you haven't heard of uh, post the Did You Know series, these are um, videos that the California uh, Post Police Officer Standard Training have spent a ton of time putting together and they're all less than two minutes. Uh, each video is less than two minutes. They're all law enforcement re related topics that they like to, uh, they, they promote as showing in the briefing room to get cops talking to each other before you go out in the field. Because we all know sometimes these, these topics come and go and people just really aren't talking enough about them. So if you get an opportunity, and I promise I will put this on uh, the Facebook, uh, the Evidence Management Facebook, and uh, I think you'll really, uh, this will really punch you in the gut because it's a it, it's a great video. So unfortunately, I, I'm not gonna be able to show it. Or should I just try it, Sean, just to see if it if it comes up for some reason? I think we can try. reinforce the point. Oh, do you see it now, or did it freeze up on you? It's playing, but I don't think we'll be able to hear it. Well, a lot of yeah, it's narrated. So. Maybe you could just do the voiceover. Okay. No, I'm just, I, I think we'll, we'll let them watch it to. online. Yeah. It might have more of a punch if they're able yeah, to see absolutely. it the way it was okay. filmed. Okay, can do that. So just to reiterate everything, stop and think before you handle narcotics, okay? Because the safety habits that you make now, just like with your chain of custody, uh, doing it the same way, redundancy every time is what's going to help save lives, whether whether it's your life or the members of the crime lab, et cetera. Um, so be safe. Remember, justice is blind, but property sees everything. All right. All right. Uh, is Brian up now? We, yeah, I will we, start uh, to I'll start to switch to Brian. I'll make him the presenter. Uh, and we wanted to have. I mean, obviously, James's perspective from a property evidence custodian, I mean, that's invaluable. I mean, I, I like I said, I learned stuff here today that, that I had not thought about before. Now, I'm only going to admit that here, uh, but <laughs> it's good stuff. And I mean, tons of things that we should definitely think about incorporating into our operations. I'm going to start thinking about these things and, and how I teach, because I think it's absolutely relevant to what you're doing in your room. Uh, and these are things we need to think about. We definitely wanted to have James's perspective from a property evidence uh, perspective, but when you really think about fentanyl exposures, if we suspect that it's that an item contains fentanyl, we're gonna do everything we can to make sure that we protect ourselves from that. But where we really have the exposure risk is not from the known things, it's from the unknown things. Uh, you know, and and that would probably be more on the officer side of the equation you know when they're reaching under a car and searching a car and they open a ziploc bag exactly like james was talking about i mean that's just a patrol thing and, and they're gonna have to relearn some of those safety skills as they go but that's when you get exposed you get exposed to fentanyl when you're not expecting it to be fentanyl and that's why the other half of this presentation and the other half of what we're talking about today is so important because you know, for years when, when, when we started teaching and when fentanyl started becoming an issue in property evidence, uh, you know, we really didn't have that much to, to talk about. Well, what happens if you get exposed? And there's only really one answer. 
there's only one way to protect yourself from an opioid exposure like fentanyl or any other opioid exposure. And, and that's why we wanted to bring Brian on today to talk about uh, naloxone. Uh, I've actually seen this in the field. I, I wrote an officer a commendation for saving the life of a of a guy. And then as proof of life, which you kind of had to do at our agency to prove that the guy actually saved a life, I used the fact that he was able to arrest the same person 12 hours later on a separate drug charge. <laughs> um, but, you know, we worked an overdose and the guy was just graveyard dead, like purple, not breathing, dead. I mean, like dead. And, you know, the officer breaks the door down, starts doing CPR, and calls the paramedics. The paramedics get there, and we had never even, I mean, we've heard of it, but we'd never seen it in action. And I mean, it was like like magic. Uh, so today we want to do a magic show, and we've got Brian Quigley here to discuss that magic with us. So I'm going to change the presenter. Hey, Sean, while you're doing that, I, I just want to make one more comment. Um, you know, fentanyl is is becoming so popular now with not just your street people, your street drugs, and, and and the typical people that you're usually arresting. I'm trying to to be sane and not saying anything uh, too disparaging, but we're seeing it more in everyday people. We're seeing it uh, overdoses with the soccer moms who um, you know have joint pain, or the student athlete that gets hurt and now gets introduced to opioids through his doctor. So all these people, even senior citizens now that are uh, having the hip replacement or something, they start taking the opioids and then that parlays into the illicit drugs, the counterfeit pills and so forth. So, um, you know, being out in the field is a, is a crazy place because if you roll up on a, a person behind the wheel and, and you don't know what's going on, the first thing that we need to think now is overdose, you know, so it's not just the street people anymore or a homeless population of drug users. Absolutely. It is, it is pervasive. Brian, I'm having trouble finding you to give you the screen. Uh, it shows unknown on your screen. Can you click something on your end to make it come to life? Uh, let me see here. Hang on one second. And while we're working on this, this is actually also intentional. This is a great time to start typing those questions in as we uh, uh, intentionally slow things down here to change presentations awkwardly. We, we planned this. This is kind of how we rehearsed it. Uh, we like these pauses. We just think it, we, we just believe it adds a nice dramatic touch. Uh, Absolutely. Also, uh, oh, can you see him? Also, I wanted to um, make mention that uh, what we've been seeing, at least in Orange County, is just that uh, a lot of simple possession charges for fentanyl are, are just getting a slap on the wrist. The longest I've seen anyone with simple possession is 90 days in jail, and that was after extensive arrests for the same thing. So we, we really try to unite together, uh, and this is kind of right up Sean's alley with talking about uh, working with your association to try and introduce legislation that would allow us to eliminate fentanyl as soon as it came back from the crime lab. And there's really no reason to keep it other than the prosecution of the case. But once we know it's fentanyl and the crime lab has already tested it and shown the report and the toxicity, it should go. I mean, that's, 
that's that's just a no-brainer. Why keep something that can can kill you 20 times over in your in your evidence room? But until we get final legislation to amend the health and safety code and so forth, we we still need to keep it and treat it as all the rest of our narcotics. All right. Well, here's the fun thing, Brian. We invited you here. We promised you you could use your presentation tools. Uh, we just we just flat lied to you. So if you want to start talking about Narcan and Naloxone and what you do and what you're about, uh, unfortunately, they're not going to have the screen, but they'll they'll have the information and they'll have the the knowledge that you can impart here. Of course. And um, what I will do is I'll get with James and I'll um see if i can give him some open source information too that way he can make it available to the group um, so um just so that um just give my little uh disclaimer up front um the information i'm going to provide is predominantly for orange county um so uh if you do have any questions about um how to get uh narcan for your agency uh, um, my recommendation would be to contact your uh, county EMS, county healthcare agency, uh, go through your um, individual agency to uh, request the training material um, and, and uh, um, additional supplies. So um, I can tell you firsthand that uh, I wish I had Narcan when I was a uh, field officer. Uh, for probation. Uh, the main reason why is because um, I'd say out of uh, my caseload of 120 high-level offenders, maybe 119 had drug problems, and out of those 119, 118 um, were uh, polysubstance to include uh, uh, opioids. So um, the big thing about Narcan is understanding that it is a tool. Um, for putting on my safety cap, um, as a uh, um, as a safety specialist, the first order of business is always identifying hazards. And as James mentioned uh, quite eloquently, fentanyl is a very big hazard for uh, staff working in evidence, for uh, officers in the field, for um, uh, individuals working in um, crime labs, you know, even individuals who are transporting evidence from point A to point B. So um, I'm getting a little feedback loop there. Did I mess something up? I'm getting it too, but I don't see you. So go ahead. I'll mute uh, everybody okay. else. So, um, the, as I was saying, the first first step is identifying the hazard. James mentioned that fentanyl um, is 100% uh, a hazard for those uh, respective class, classifications that I mentioned. Um, so the next step when it comes to the safety process is can you remove the hazard? And as James and anyone who works law enforcement could know, we would love to remove opioids from uh, a hazard, but unfortunately we live in the real world and uh, that's unfortunately not possible. Um, so the next step is mitigation of, uh, of safety of, of the actual hazard um, and trying to reduce the risk. We do that through engineering controls, through admin controls, through PPE. Um, James went through several engineering controls which you can put into place to make um, evidence rooms more safe, 
Um, uh, he mentioned PPE, when, uh, uh, the nitro gloves, the respirators, the face shields when applicable. So Narcan is just one of those extra tools which more agencies should have, um, in my opinion, uh, which can help um, reduce the risk in cases of accidental exposure. And not just for, for uh, staff working in evidence, but, you know, of course, the officers in the field, healthcare providers in the field, um, it, it's a good tool to have. Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's like the, uh, uh, I worked with a partner who um, had allergies and first thing he told me before we hit the field was, hey, my EpiPen is in this pocket if you ever, if, if I go down. Um, and as James mentioned, hey, the, the, the Narcan is in these, these containers uh, in case. So uh, that, that communication is key. So going back to, uh, to Narcan, um, uh, James already mentioned opioids, um, but it's also, but it, it's important to know, um, uh, as I mentioned, that Narcan is a tool. And it's a tool that was created in response to um, an ongoing and escalating risk uh, in our communities. Um, in Orange County, California, to be example, there was a 10% increase um, in cases where Narcan was used uh, between 2014 and 2015 uh, with over um, 1,067 noted in 2015. Um, uh, 2012 and 2016, um, Narcan administrations as a whole rose by 75%. And uh, at the same time, there was a 79% increase um, in opioid mortality rates. So the, um, the need for having Narcan on, on hand is definitely there. Um, and uh, the topic of this conversation is fentanyl. You know that's case in point on why we sh why uh, Narcan is important. So um, when it comes to Orange County, um, this uh, Narcan started um, after a uh, after the county EMS uh, signed signed a standing order, which basically allowed um, uh, the uh, EMS agency medical director allowed uh, for the uh, use of Narcan as an optional skill. Um, for public safety first responders, um, provided they uh, receive training um, and uh, are, are issued proper um, equipment. Um, so it all starts with a piece of paper, and in this situation, it starts with standing with uh, the standing order SOFR01 from OCEMS, the medical medical director. Uh, which was signed back in 2015 and revised in 2018. Now, uh, when it comes to Narcan, uh, I'm just going to go over some of the highlights. Uh, Narcan temporarily blocks the effects of, of opioids, um, and it typically works within one to three minutes. It could last 30 to 90 minutes. Um, however, the, the the key there is temporary. Now. Uh, Narcan in its current, more commercially available uh, packaging, where you have the little plunger, you stick up the person's nose, it comes in a blister pack of two. Uh, the reason why those were created was so that it eliminates the, 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 any risk of needle stick. Um, and once again, as a field officer, I could tell you needle sticks were a very big hazard 
in the field. So anything we can do to eliminate that is, is key. And that's why the, the current Narcan uh, packaging um, was designed to reduce that risk. Um, it's, uh, it's not complicated, it's convenient. Like I said, it's administered through the nose, it's painless, it doesn't require shots. Um, the packaging, which most of it comes in, includes two, um, two doses. Um, it's important also to, you know, to uh, uh, include gloves and PPE, of course. Um, but the packaging itself is pretty robust. So long as you store it within an area which is between uh, 60, 86 degrees Fahrenheit, in other words, don't leave it in the trunk of your car. Uh, it will uh, storage in extreme temperatures, of course, will uh, will cause prolonged effects, negative effects to the actual um, uh, Narcan. Um, if you have any questions, you know, let me know. Um, but another key tip here is just as uh, I guess one of the questions which was brought up was how to dispose of of gloves. Narcan, the way the, the current uh, uh, applicators, so I'll put it in the box and you can toss them in the trash so long as you know you keep it away from kids. Um, so it's very, very convenient. Now, right about now is where I would be going. Uh, I would be uh, playing you some videos on uh, what to look for, um, um, signs of an overdose. Uh, technology being technology, I'll go ahead and uh, send the link to James so that he can include that. Just know that, that the videos that uh, I would be playing, they are open source, they are available on um, uh, YouTube. They're from California Department of Public Health. Um, and the other uh, training video I found is actually from the uh, um, manufacturer itself. So I'll make sure to get those in James so that they can be uploaded for your viewing pleasure. Um, but the key here is understanding, recognizing the symptoms of an overdose um, and understanding when you need to use it. Um, the it, Narcan is not one of those things where, um, hey, I think I've been exposed. I'm just going to go ahead and take a dose right now just to be on the safe side. Uh, that's not how it works. Um, it won't hurt you if you do it like that, of course. But it's not it's not how it's supposed to it's not how it's supposed to work. So. You administer Narcan um, in the event of an, of an overdose. Um, when uh, this is beyond the, the nodding to more of a heavy nod, this is the non-responsive situation. This is the slow heartbeat, slow pulse, um, you know, fading in, and fading uh, completely out to black. Um, the uh, key there is that if you could ask for Narcan yourself, you don't need it. I'm, the time when you administer Narcan is when you're down, when you run across someone who is down. That's when Narcan is administered. Um, if the person is still conscious, of course, contact EMS, get first aid down, get uh, um, uh, paramedics down there right away. But if you have a situation where an exposure happens and the person drops from, opio, from a suspected opioid overdose, you then you administer Narcan immediately. Um, uh, so. Um, the packaging uh, includes a uh, quick start, uh, quick guide, which goes over the steps of administering uh, Narcan. Um, the key here is always to use universal precautions, whether you're in the field or anywhere. 
Um, and then this is where I usually mention um, the three priorities when it comes to use. Always remember the safety of the scene. Always remember your safety. What I mean by that is personal protective equipment and also the safety of the patient. Um, in evidence uh, setting, um, the scene safety is uh, important, but at the same time, I'm pretty sure you're pretty safe in your own evidence room. Um, PPE, of course, and patient safety, of course, but if you're in the field uh, hanging off of a cliff, uh, it's probably going to be pretty difficult to administer uh, Narcan. So um, going back to actual administering Narcan, um, uh, as I mentioned before, the quick guide has uh, instructions on how to position the individual, and this is once again after you've determined um, the Narcan needs to be administered, um, uh, laying the individual flat, opening up the airways, placing a, a hand under the chin to lift up the airway to make sure that um, it is open, positioning the uh, uh, Narcan dose in the nostril um, and depressing the plunger. Um, all that's covered in Quick Start Guide and in the uh, training videos, like I mentioned. Once that's done, you put the individual in the rest in the recovery position uh, to ensure that um, uh, there's no obstructions in the airway, and so they don't, uh, that uh, recovering individuals don't accidentally choke on vomit, which can happen. And of course, of course, ensuring the medical personnel have been requested are en route. Um, so, just going over um, a couple of the highlights, and like I said, I've Usually we'll be giving you uh, death by PowerPoint and some videos right now, but uh, keep on rolling. Um, Narcan is only to be used for unconscious, unresponsive, not breathing, or barely breathing patients uh, that you suspect are having opioid overdose. Um, it isn't prophylactic for incidental exposure. Um, if you can give it to yourself, you probably don't need it because once again, it's our unconscious, unresponsive, not breathing, barely breathing. Um, if um, you if uh, uh, it doesn't treat for overdoses for alcohol, for cocaine, and other substances, um, and uh, the only potential hazard associated with it is uh, um, allergies which is very, very, very rare. Um, so uh, from a, uh, another safety hazard is that uh, once you administer it, you also need to be on, on be careful because uh, recovery time could be quick and right away, um, the individual could be experiencing withdrawal symptoms um, if, you're dealing, if, uh, if you're an officer dealing with someone in the field. Um, but you just have to be, be aware that the recovery could be pretty quick once administered. Um, but I will, of course, provide uh, James with all the uh, links for training material. That way you could uh, uh, refer back to it. And keep in mind, this is just an overview um, of Narcan. I can tell you that um, the process for um, being able to issue Narcan in Orange County is you have to go through a full training, um, which covers a lot of what we, what I just went over in more detail. Um, 
then you have to take a practical exam. The training has to be logged, and then at that point, you can start issuing your um, uh, equipment. It's also important to note that once training is completed, there is a bi there is a uh, biannual refresher course, which also has to be uh, completed. Once again, this is for Orange County, not for uh, I can only speak for Orange County. Um, so check your local um, rules and requirements. Um, but a biannual refresher is also required. Um, and then, of course. Um, it's important to um, maintain inventory, uh, review your uh, supplies to make sure whatever you have isn't expired, um, and that the, the equipment that you do have is properly taken care of. Like I said, don't leave it in the back of your trunk. So um, I think I covered pretty much everything on Narcan. Uh, did you have any questions? Let me let me look, and I just want to kind of hit two things really quick that might be of use, especially if you're in California. Uh, I know that uh, we had some discussion. I, I can't remember if we put the information on the Facebook forum or not, but in California, there's still an active program where agencies can obtain naloxone from a manufacturer at no cost to the agency. Uh, we'll, I'll search for that. I might not be able to find it this afternoon. It might be deep in my email, but if you're in California, I know I got some email correspondence and, and saw some connections happening and that program still exists. So that's California specifically. There are probably other states where that exists. If you work in a state or you live in a state or you, you're serving in a state where there is a state-related program, uh, if you would put that on the evidence community forum, that would be helpful because there might be an agency two miles down the road that's not aware of that program. Uh, but just to kind of recap, at, at most agencies, there are probably three requirements to getting Narcan in in place and ready to go at your agency. One is that memorandum of understanding from a medical provider or, or health uh, agent with the municipality or with the county or with, with whatever jurisdiction you're serving in. The second is an SOP. The third is rolling out training, specifically user training to the officers, and then having a uh, a protocol and a procedure written and documented that people can follow and then deployment in the field and then the refresher training. So that is all really important. And this stuff, I mean, it's, I can't, there is no business reason for not putting uh, naloxone out in the field and not having naloxone on your person uh, at all times because we live in a world where, and, and it's not just fentanyl, it's any opioid, uh, there is an opioid epidemic. I mean, painkillers, any any opioid, uh, this stuff can counteract those uh, counteract those effects rapidly. Uh, so, we will encourage you to continue to look for that. So, a couple of questions: How do you train your officers and evidence staff on Narcan administration? How does that How does that work at uh, in Orange County? Uh, James, do you mind if I take the lead on that for for safety training? I can't hear him. I'm assuming he's saying he yeah. doesn't mind. He we can't hear him, okay. so he doesn't mind at all. <laughs> uh, so for once again, this is Orange County. Um, I can't speak for other jurisdictions. Um, so everything starts with uh, Orange County EMS. Um, once you've established your program within your agency, um, program administrator is named. Trainers go through the train the trainer program through County EMS. Um, and then in-person training is completed um, for staff who have identified hazard or risk. Um, training is typically done in person. 
Um, the materials are provided by County EMS. Uh, I supplement them with additional open source uh, videos, but the training material and the criteria is provided to you. Um, you then complete a, uh, um, a participant test to make sure that you didn't fall asleep in the class um, and that you understand um, the use scenarios, you understand the policies um, for your agency, which I did not cover, um, but there are policies. Um, and then, um, like I said, there are the refreshers, which happen every two, every two years. Um, so it starts with the county EMS. Program is created at the agency level. Trainers, uh, administrators and trainers are assigned. Um, staff then, uh, staff are then identified. They receive training in person. Um, and then once that training is completed, then Narcan can be issued. All right. I think that got one more question here. And if there are any questions before we go, uh, go ahead and type them in that little tiny box down there. We will try to get to them. But this one is a is an excellent question, uh, and it's one that probably needs a little more specificity. And Brian, you might able because you've got a safety background and, and a background of working with OSHA. We talk a lot about adequate ventilation. And when I teach a training class, I mean, we talk about having adequate ventilation in an evidence room. Uh, but that that means something specific. So when when we say uh, adequate ventilation, what specific type of ventilation system? Uh, do you recommend from a safety perspective and an actual like changes per hour perspective? Unfortunately, that's outside my air, uh, area of expertise. Is that the question that I would refer um, individuals to our county industrial hygienist? Um, if you want, what I will do is I will make note of that question. I will get a uh, response to James the way you could post it up. That sounds great. Let's let's do that. I know I do know just as a rule of thumb. Uh, OSHA has some specific standards and guidelines with respect to, you know, positive pressure environments for ventilating, uh, not necessarily drug rooms, but just safe facilities. Uh, but we'll get that information posted on the evidence management community forum for you at a later date. That's why you pay the price for admission here today. Yeah, so thank little. you. A little, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sean. I just have a little bit to add on that because we uh, we went down that path already with uh, the positive air pressure uh, venting to a location that um, in our building is an eight-story building. So the ventilation had to um, support at a location where there would be no risk of exposure. So uh, it's an isolated system. Uh, positive airflow pushes uh, everything up a vent and out of the building in a location where it wouldn't cause harm. And if you don't have that ability, then you have to have specific filters that capture all the particles on the way out of the facility. Does that even kind of make sense or resonate with some of the of our other viewers? Yeah. Yeah, there are two ways that most evidence rooms try to try to get clean circulation or circulated air, especially in drug vaults. I mean, the best is to have a positive pressure ventilation system, uh, but there are also air scrubbers that can that can move some air throughout your facility as well. Uh, it's really difficult for a lot of agencies to achieve that kind of ventilation because we're inheriting facilities that, uh, that we don't really have any control over, and sometimes they're not able to be retrofitted with uh, with safer ventilation systems, but there are things that we can do to mitigate those. And we'll talk about those in the future. 
Uh, thank you for being here. We're right at an hour and eight minutes. Let me double check, see if there are any questions. I think everything was so thoroughly covered that we had none. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Brian, for being here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again, James, as always, for being pleasure. here. And I uh, look forward to talking with you in the future. I'm going to go ahead and push the little red button and close things off today. But uh, next, uh, July 9th will be our next evidence show episode. And I didn't have a little screen to advertise it. But I think I'm going to have an episode ready uh, for what I think is one of the coolest ways to store evidence in humankind. Uh, in the recorded history of humanity, <laughs> I think this is something really cool. So we'll Let's we'll talk see. about that in episode three. Uh, we'll be sending something out as a reminder for the next show. That'll be July 9th, if my calendar is correct. But I don't even know what today day today is, so trust the emails. So have a great week. Thank you for being here. Again, thanks, James. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. We'll see you next time. Have a good day. Thank you.